All right, Alexander, let's talk about the big uh, election victory for uh, Gert Wilders in the Netherlands. 30, 37 seats out of uh, 150. He is now going to try and form a coalition government, which could prove to be challenging. Uh, we've had some statements from the EU's favorite candidate, Timmermans, saying that uh, he's going to put up resistance to, to Gert Wilders in order to protect democracy, in order to save democracy. Timmermans is going to is going to try to prevent the, the leading party from forming a government. Anyway, um, an incredible uh, outcome in the elections in the Netherlands, an absolutely incredible outcome. And now uh, the world is waiting to to see what happens. It is an it is a stunning outcome. I mean, can I just say? I mean, the Netherlands is right at the heart of the EU. It has been one of the sort of core states of the EU. It was one of the original founder states of the original European Economic Community, you know, in the Treaty of Rome. It was one of the signatory states of the Treaty of Rome. It is, you know, deeply Europeanist, or has been up to this point, to the core. And now we have a um, well-known Eurosceptic, a person who's promoted, who still supports the idea of a referendum for you know, the Netherlands might you know leave the EU entirely, a person who's um, a very skilled and very charismatic politician, but uh, you know a controversial one in the Netherlands for all the reasons that we've just discussed. Anyway, a person like that wins the election in the Netherlands of all places. I mean, the the, the best analogy I can think of is, you know, Nigel Farage coming back into into politics in Britain and winning a kind of landslide there, you know, becoming in a position where he's uh, in, the gov in the government. I mean, in some ways, Wilders is very like Farage, only I'd say with an even harder edge. So, I mean, this is, a, you know, this is a huge electoral shock. Now, let's just unpack some of the things you said. First of all, about the fact that it's quite plausible that despite the fact that he's won this election, he won't be able to form the next government. There'll be coalition talks. There'll be all kinds of things. It's not impossible. We could end up with Tindermans as the prime minister of the Netherlands, despite the fact that his party um, did far worse than Gert Wilders' party did. By the way, that is another thing to say. I mean, Gert Wilders only won. His party only won 37 um, seats out of the 150 in the Dutch parliament. But, of course, the Dutch political system is, system is very, very fragmented. And he won far more seats than any other party in the Netherlands did. The party that came second won just 25 seats. So, you know, this is a big victory for Wilders. But we might very well end up with Tindermans or someone like him. And that is exactly what happens in the EU. We saw that in the Spanish elections, <laughs> the uh, um, right-wing parties, which had sceptical perspectives about much that's going on in the EU. They came top. And what have we ended up? We've ended up with Prime Minister Sanchez and the Socialist Party still in control, uh, uh, doing, uh, making, forging coalitions with Catalan separatists. So, I mean, you know, we, we might very plausibly see 
the same result in the Netherlands. That doesn't mean in any way, though, that we should discount the implications of this. It shows the trend in opinion in the Netherlands and across Europe now. We're seeing this in place after place, in country after country, even if the eventual outcome might be different. When people are given the, you know, the chance to vote, they are making it increasingly clear that they are voting against the EU combinat, if you like, in growing numbers. And at the same time, it also shows the repudiation in the Netherlands of Merkelism. And I say Merkelism because, of course, just as Germany until recently, the political system there had become completely stagnant and immobile with Angela Merkel always in control, always keeping things dead centre, always moving the EU project forward. We had the same thing exactly in the Netherlands with Mark Rutte. Mark Rutte ran the system. He was extremely skilled at doing this. He kept the political system not just stable, but ultimately immobile. He was a pillar of the EU and European system. And when the moment he left the scene, it became immediately clear that none of his successors had the, any, had the same sort of political skills as he has, just as no one in Germany has Merkel's set of particular political skills. And the moment, you know, the figure that was holding it all together, Merkel or Rutte, leave the scene, the entire system, this, this sort of Merkelist system, starts to crumble. And we see that in the Netherlands again. Now, I, as I said, don't uh, people shouldn't assume that we're going to see an immediate change in policy or politics out of the Netherlands. As I said, it's quite plausible someone like Tindemans will again become prime minister. And, you know, the EU, the one thing they're good at, as we've discussed many times, is keeping the show on the road, keep, you know, kicking the can forward. But it does reflect how fragile the electoral support for this is now becoming. And we see this happening now. I mean, there were the Italian elections with Maloney. There were the elections in Slovakia, which brought Fizzo to power. We've had, we're now looking at opinion polls in Austria, which suggests that the Freedom Party there might very well win in the elections next year. So we're starting to see right across Europe an increasing signs of a repudiation of the system that we've seen in control for so long. The IFD in Germany as well. And the IFD in Germany is rising and... Um, in all sorts of places, things are, as I said, things are the, beginning to change. The, the difference between uh, today and the era of, uh, of Merkel is that uh, Merkel was able to, to keep the show on the road, to kick the can, because she hadn't cut off Russia. There was tension. There, was, there were some sanctions. There was definitely... Uh, disputes between Europe and Russia, but there hadn't been a complete uh, cutoff. They didn't sever their 
their access to to Russian resources, which we now know it's the Russian resources that powered uh, the European Union, specifically countries like uh, Germany. So, you know, Rutte, I would imagine he understood this. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't quite understand this. Maybe he had a sense of this. But you know, you you can't you can't continue to keep this thing going while at the same time sanctioning Russia and and essentially sinking your economy and all of uh, all of Europe, uh, all of the uh, European nations' uh, economies. So, I mean, you know, the, these new figures like Wilders are going to have to navigate navigate things with the reality that it's going to be very difficult to roll back the sanctions. I mean, Orban is, is trying to, to keep relations with Russia going while trying to, to navigate the European Union. But, you know, it's tough. It's not going to be easy. And, uh, and, and Merkel, she, she didn't have that challenge. And so I think, uh, I think that's one of the big differences that we see with, with today and, and say maybe four or five years ago. They were Absolutely. able to do what they did because, you know, the, Germany was still producing. It was still competitive. Well, the U.S. is absolutely Now the money's going to go. The money's going to go. <laughs> gonna right go. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right about this in the sense that, look, Merkel's great skill was keeping everything, the political thing, situation in Europe, in a kind of suspended animation. <laughs> there was no development, but she kept things always as they were. So she understood entirely the importance of maintaining this economic lifeline, this energy lifeline to Russia. She understood that. But of course, what she was not prepared to do was to take on the entrenched forces within the EU, within the Euro-Atlantic system that wanted um, to take, to, you know, to break those relations with Russia. So the moment she left the scene and everything, you know, the political system then began to function without her, those people who wanted to break relations with Russia, they were able to come into their own. And of course, they broke relations with Russia. Of course, they didn't see what Merkel saw, the importance of maintaining this energy link, because of course, they don't think in that kind of way. They think in a completely different way to the way that Merkel did. But Merkel, by keeping things in suspended animation, just kept everything going. I mean, gradually, steadily, the tensions were increasing. The problems were accumulating. She never addressed or solved the problems, but she was just able to keep things on the surface very placid. With her gone, everything's now starting to come up. And if we're talking about the Netherlands, Rutter, really, he couldn't survive without Merkel. <laughs> this is why he's ultimately left the scene. I mean, there are, you know, domestic political reasons why Rutter uh, um, was, you know, obliged to quit the scene. But ultimately, because Merkel was keeping everything in this state of suspended animation, that was what made it possible for uh, Rutte to do the same in the Netherlands. With Merkel gone, it was no longer possible for Rutte to do this on this much smaller scale in the Netherlands. He's gone, and we see things starting to change there. Now, uh, you talked about Wilders. Wilders 
understands many things that other political leaders in Europe do not. He is very skeptical about Ukraine altogether. He's uh, basically somebody who would want, I think, to see if he were to come back into power. He would want to see some kind of rapprochement with the Russians, some attempt to try and rebuild the economic links with Russia. He understands the importance of that. Um, the IFD in Germany understand the importance of that as well. We did a programme on the Duran um, in which we interviewed uh, a high official of the IFD. And he spoke very interestingly about the need for this for Germany. But of course, the forces that resist that at the moment remain immensely strong within the Netherlands as well. And though it is remarkable that Wilders, with that kind of message, has broken through to the extent that he has done, given you know the intense anti-Russian you know marketing propaganda, whatever you like, that goes on in the Netherlands, which is probably beyond that which you will find in any other place. Um, in spite, you know, it, it, it's remarkable that in the face of all of that, he's managed to win through to the extent that he has done, I still think, as I said, that the forces for the moment are too strong to enable him to change course. And that's why the problems are now getting more visible with Merkel gone, and they're getting, but they're, be, they're beca and they're becoming worse, but they're also becoming, in some ways, more difficult to manage. So it's, we're going to see, we're going to see lots of tensions. And of course, if we, swerve to Germany at the moment. I mean, the other thing that Merkel was very skilled at doing was running the German economy in a kind of way that, again, didn't encourage innovation, tended to cause Germany to reinvest in what we was already doing, reinvest continuously in what we was already doing. It was letting the German economy become increasingly stagnant in some respects, but it kept the machine humming. We've seen how that's now starting to fall apart. Because Merkel was able to keep the machine humming, she was able to keep the German financial situation in some sort of health. Germany's now running increasingly big deficits, and which is something that didn't happen in Merkel's time. And the government, as a result, is coming up against the constitutional breaks, which were, by the way, introduced, as I understand it, with Merkel's support, which basically don't allow Germany to run deficits. So they have been running deficits. They've been allowing the debt-to-GDP ratio in Germany to rise. They've been running deficits. They've tried to get round the um, constitutional break by using ring-fenced funds to plug the gaps. The Constitutional Court has come forward and said you can't do that. That's unconstitutional and illegal. So they now have to make a decision. What do they do? Do they raise taxes, which is not what Germany needs? Do they cut spending, which is not what the Greens in Germany want? Do they reduce aid to Ukraine, which is, of course, a major sticking point for many people in Germany, but is 
in some respects, almost the signature policy of the coalition. And doing that probably wouldn't be enough. So you can see how in Germany as well, the problems with Merkel no longer there are starting to grow. Is, is one of the options to, to go more into to the conflict with Russia, to double down on it? Because everything's so bad. I mean, Germany obviously is, is running out of money to, to continue to, to run its own country and to continue to fund Ukraine, which is what it's, what it's doing, what all of Europe is doing is, is keeping Ukraine afloat. But it seems like over the past week or two, what we've seen is we've seen uh, the EU and NATO kind of push towards a more uh, a more aggressive uh, tone, a more aggressive uh, trajectory towards uh, towards conflict with Russia. We've seen statements from Pavel. Uh, we've seen this this NATO Schengen thing that they're that they're trying to put together. There are rumors of a document that's floating around the European Union, according to Bloomberg, which talks about providing the EU providing security guarantees. I mean, the EU and NATO. Are, are obviously one in the same, or they're they're definitely merging to become one in the same. And it seems like like with all the difficulties that Europe is facing, whether it's it's the elections in in the Netherlands and having someone like uh, Wilders um, coming around and saying, "Look, we have to we have to listen to what Orbán is saying, and we have to get to some sort of uh, an agreement with Russia, some sort of a ceasefire," or whether it's running out of money. And, and the decisions by the by the courts in Germany seems like the, the the option that they're choosing, or they're being pushed towards, maybe by the Americans, whatever the the, the option that that they're moving towards is uh, is to go into to a full on conflict with Russia. Well, absolutely, unless that's bluffing. Unless that's just no. Bluffing. I I I I don't think it is a bluff. I think it does reflect growing nervousness about uh, um, uh, lots of things that are going on, about, you know, the fact that Ukraine is now visibly losing the war. I mean, they don't want to say that, but they all sense that it is, and that's making them very nervous. And they're also becoming increasingly nervous about what the Americans are going to do. I mean, they're worried about the elections in the United States next year and the possible outcome of the elections. And when someone like Pavel comes forward and says, you know, that the Russia is the greatest enemy, that they're the real threat um, and we need to prepare um, for an intense war with them in Europe. Now, that is also intended, I think, on the part of some European politicians, and Pavel is not speaking just for himself, as a message to the United States that, you know, it's not China that's the enemy, it's Russia. We must focus on Russia because Russia is the real danger in Europe. And, you know, we're worried about the fact that you're worrying about China because you're taking your eye away from what the real threat is. And that's Putin and the Russians and all of that. But, yes, that's exactly what you said they're going to do. That's exactly what some of them want them, want to do. Their instinct is not to um, back off. It's certainly not to reach out to the Russians and try to come to some kind of understanding with them. That that isn't part of their agenda at all. It's certainly obviously not to try and restore the energy links, you know, repair Nord Stream 2 or rebuild it or do something of that kind. What they want to do is perhaps move even more towards a full-on confrontation with some kind of more militarised economy, perhaps. 
and hope that that's going to solve the problems. What it's more likely to do is exacerbate the problems. But when did the EU in the last 30, 40 years make any decision that made problems less grave? <laughs> it's always when it's given the choice, um, taken steps that ultimately make problems more grave. And that's what it's doing. Yeah, I remember like nine months ago, 10 months ago, Borrell and some other EU officials were talking about the need for Europe to, uh, to enter a war footing for the economies of, of the EU nations to become uh, war economies. And that, that idea, that proposal was kind of brushed off because for obvious reasons. But um, I wonder if that's been the, the plan all along. Or, or well, it, it, is, it is it is or a plan C, and and that's where they're leading everybody towards is a war, a war economy for all well, of Europe. I think that, that is what disastrous, of course. Yeah, we're in a disastrous idea. I mean, I think that is indeed what some of them want to see happen. The fundamental problem with that is, first of all, as I said, the European electorates probably are not keen on that idea, uh, even if you crank up the hysteria to, you know, stratospheric levels. I, I, I don't really think that this is a priority for most Europeans. But putting that aside, I you run up against the fundamental problem that running a war economy is a very challenging and very difficult thing. It requires you to be an extremely skilled administrator and manager and technocrat. Now, these people are not skilled managers. This is something that we've seen time and time again. And you can see that in Germany. Last year, Olaf Scholz was going around telling you Germany must rearm, it must re-equip, it must build up its armaments industries, it must increase the size of its defence budgets by multiples. Um, that's fiscally now more difficult because of the decision of the Constitutional Court. But beyond that, to the extent that they've tried to improve things within the German military, every account that I've been reading, and there's been a report now from the, apparently from the Bundestag, Bundestag committee, says that during the time that Olaf Scholz has been chancellor, the state of the German military has deteriorated even further. It's got less equipment than it did before. Training levels have fallen. There's more bureaucracy, more disorganisation. Because these people are not really there. They don't know how to run things well. And without that, all talk of a war economy is just, frankly, empty air. Yeah. All right. We will uh, leave it there. The Duran.locals.com. We are on Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, Telegram, Rockfin, and Twitter X. And go to the Duran shop. 20% off. Use the code the Duran 20 Take care.